You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Psalm 19 this morning. My name is Pastor Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here. It is a privilege to be able to preach this morning to you. I love VBS. As a kid, uh, we used to go to VBS. My dad was a pastor, so every year we'd have VBS. Sometimes it would be in the evening. And um, one of the guys that came uh, often would do what's called a chalk talk. Does anybody know what a chalk talk is? So basically, he would draw this picture with chalk about some aspect of the gospel. But while he was drawing it, there was a, a, a little piece of chalk. It was white and he would be drawing along with the colored chalk, and the white didn't show up until the very end when the lights would go off and he would turn a black light on, and then another image would appear on the drawing, and it was awesome. It was like the whole painting changed, so if it was like the tomb of Christ, it would, you would see that in full color, and then he would turn the black light on, and you'd see the angel sitting above the rock that was rolled away, and you'd see the crosses in the distance. So cool. Um, all that worked together to help me want to worship God, and that's why I'm here today, because um, in part, we were able to not just hear the gospel, but see it, and so Keisha said that, and I appreciate she said that, because I, I want you to keep that in mind as we look at Psalm 19 this morning. Ricky has already read Psalm 19, so we're not going to go back through that. Um, I'm going to go through it in sections, uh, so we'll be able to look at it again, and I want to draw some, some uh, principles from that. In 1952, an evangelical pastor from New York City wrote a book that would revolutionize the world. His name was Norman Vincent Peale, and his book was entitled The Power of Positive Thinking. This book was on the New York Times bestseller list for over 180 weeks. Almost 50 of those weeks, it was on the number one spot. The book sold millions and According to Dr. Peel, he wrote the book with the sole object or sole objective of helping the reader achieve a happy, satisfying, and worthwhile life. Of course, who doesn't want that, right? Happy, satisfying, worthwhile life. We're all in pursuit of that. I think we're in agreement with that. In his book, he told presidents and business executives and millions of others that with a proper state of mind induced with a simple prayer... You could produce spiritual material success on earth, which, of course, he demonstrated by his own life as becoming a wealthy man. Peel's teaching of positive thinking was framed in the context of, if you can believe it, you can have it. If you can believe it, you can be it. If you can believe it, you can do it. This mantra has shaped the American culture, as you're already thinking, and our contemporary mantras of, you can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. You can achieve anything you want to achieve. Norman Vincent Peale was right in suggesting that the way you think is critical to your success. That's true. But his teaching was not at all tied to God's will for your life. Peel's message was simply fleshly, temporal, and fell short of the gospel. An Episcopalian theologian and later bishop, John Crum, criticized Peel 
It said something that I think is important. He said uh, this heretical character of his teaching on positive thinking encourages the emphasis upon techniques such as the repetition of confident phrases or the manipulation of certain mechanical devices, which he says gives the impression of a thoroughly depersonalized religion. Of course, we don't serve an depersonalized God or an impersonal God. Very personal. Crumb states that Peel's book basically puts man at the center and changes divine reality into an impersonal power. The use and purpose of which is determined by the man who takes hold of it and employs it as best he thinks. David had already written a psalm on success. Psalm 19 is that psalm. And if Dr. Peel, Peel had read that and understood it, it may have shaped his book in a different way. In Psalm 19, David sets the foundation for success, and it's not in positive thinking, but it's in right thinking. And it's not thinking that comes from within you, it's thinking that comes from without you or outside of you. The danger of Dr. Peel's message is that somehow there is truth inside of you that you'll benefit from. What we know from Scripture is that that truth inside of you is tainted with sin. So we have to be listening to voices outside of us. So in verse 14, for example, it says this. This is what David's point is as he sums up the psalm. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Essentially, right words, right thoughts lead to right actions. And he's going to talk about that in verses 12 and 13, about sin and about doing right as opposed to doing wrong. Right words, right thoughts lead to right actions. That's the point of this psalm. Words matter. The words you repeat to yourself are often words you heard other people say about you. As a child, if someone had ever called you ugly or said you had big ears, you tend to dwell on those statements, don't you? It tends to affect you. If a, an adult have, has ever said, hey, you're stupid, it affects you in a very negative way. Words matter. The old phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is not true, right? Words hurt. Words have power. Words have meaning. Words matter. What you hear affects what you think about, which will affect what you do. So we got to be careful that we're hearing the right things, right? There's a lot of voices out there, a lot of messages being taught. Parents, a lot of messages that your kids are listening to. What are they listening to? Because words have meaning, right? It's not just in Psalm. Consider Joshua 1.8 which says this, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Same formula, right? For then you will make your way prosperous and then you'll have good success. All right, the book of the law doesn't originate in your heart. The book of the law is outside of you. Right, so underscoring that point, that truth, that David wants you to meditate upon is not from within, 
as Dr. Norman Vincifield would suggest, but it's from without. Words matter, David knows it, so that's why he structures the psalm by giving us three words or three messages to act as a sort of what I consider a tomato cage on how to frame your thinking. Right, tomato cages are there for a reason, right? Have you ever tried to grow a tomato plant without a tomato cage? I did that one time. I planted the plant thinking, oh, with all good you know, intentions, I was going to go down to Home Depot and pick up a tomato cage and then plant it, put it around it. Never did that. <laughs> Before too long, the plant grew, flowers came out, and then fruit started to sprout, and it started to droop, and then eventually hit the ground, and it began to rot. Tomato plants that grow on the ground have rotten and diseased fruit. We know that. That's why we stick tomato cages around it so that that plant can grow. All right, so these three messages that David's going to give us are like that tomato plant. So what are we going to look at? Number one, and I think of these things as three posts. The first post is the message of creation, verses one through six. The second post is the message of scripture. And the third post, of course, is the message of the conscience or your conscience. Those are three messages that are always with you as a Christian. You're always in nature. You're always in creation. Scripture is always around you, and your conscience is always there. These messages are important because they teach us about God in some way. Creation teaches us about God's presence. Scripture teaches us about God's passion. And our conscience teaches us about God's pardon. These are very important things that God wants us to meditate upon. So if you put these things, things together, meditating on the message of creation reveals God's presence. Meditating on the message of scripture reveals God's passion. And thirdly, meditating on the message of your conscience reveals God's pardon. What we'll be meditating upon these things have a very practical reason and purpose. And that is so, as David says, that we can be innocent of great transgression was the antithesis to being prosperous in the eyes of God. All right, so what is the great transgression? Well, those are the transgressions that ruin your life. The great transgressions, it does have a more defined meaning. We'll look at that later. But for now, things like this, unbelief, adultery, murder, bitterness, wrath, envy, drunkenness, fornication, gluttony, pride, lust, homosexuality, anxiety, fear, depression, torment, suicide, These are things that can destroy your life. And so what David is saying, listen, I want you to meditate on the right messages so that you don't destroy your life. I don't want my life destroyed. That's what David say. So I've entitled this message, The Power of Right Thinking. What is informing your thinking? What words are you listening to? What books do you read, right? What podcasts are you listening to? What's your entertainment like? What is the moral character of your son or daughter's hero? Right? Video games, social media, friends, all these things have a practical flow, right? They point to and they help you make great decisions on who your friends are going to be, what business decisions you're going to make, your partnerships in life, your purchases, your downtime. Right words, right thoughts lead to right actions. 
That's what we're going to focus on this morning. Right words, right thoughts lead to right actions. You have the right words speaking into your life. You'll have the right thoughts to meditate on. It'll lead to right actions. Let's look at the first point. Meditating on the message of creation reveals God's presence or power. Meditating on the message of creation reveals God's power. So as you look at this, verses 1 through 6, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout or through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. David says, first of all, I want you to meditate on the heavens. You might say, why is it plural? Because the way they thought of heavens, the way we sometimes think of it is they had the watery heavens, which is the clouds, and the air above it, which is the second heaven, then the third heaven would be the starry sky. So that's what David's saying. The heavens declare. So as we stare at the sky, it declares, it speaks in a way that is unique. So imagine this, David's in the Middle East. Right? There's very little light pollution back then. So as the sun went down and the stars came out, what did they see? They saw stars everywhere. Thousands upon thousands of stars. And so David's looking up at the sky and he's just meditating upon this beauty that he sees. But notice, nine times in these verses, the words like declare, proclaim, speech, two times, knowledge, Words are used twice, and voice is used twice. What David is saying is that nature has a voice. Nature is speaking to us. Tells us something. Have you ever thought about that? Nature speaks to you. Are you listening? Are you listening? What does it say? Verse 1, the heavens declare, preach, or say, says the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. The goal of nature is to point us to the creator. I want you to notice just beyond the message, the comprehensibility of the message. In verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. In other words, every people group, every tribe, every tongue, every nation lives in nature, is exposed to nature. It's amazing. Any country you go to, almost any continent, on every continent for sure, there is something incredible to see in nature. Whether you're in Africa or Asia, Victoria Falls in Africa, you think of the Grand Canyon in America, you think of great caverns and great mountain peaks and great vistas and great ocean views. It's everywhere. Notice the extent of this message. Verse 4, the voice goes out throughout all the earth and the words to the end of the world. 
nobody is going to escape this message. They're listening to it. They're hearing it. And he uses a couple of illustrations here. He says in verse 4, he says, In them he has sent, set a tent for the sun. The sun kind of acts as a um, descriptor for, for God himself. But it says, in, in, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Listen, there is no more joy than when a groom has married his best friend and is now able to claim her. He is in radiant joy. Like a strong man, he runs his course. He's not weak. This is an interesting fact you may want to know. Every two minutes, talking about the strength of the sun, every two minutes, the energy reaching the earth from the sun is equivalent to the whole annual energy of all humanity. All the energy, the cars, the lighting, the air conditioning, all of that is equivalent in two minutes of the sun to one year's worth of labor here on earth. That's how powerful the sun is. You extrapolate that out, that would be for one full day. Sun's here for eight hours, on the other side of the world for eight hours, and somewhere else for eight hours. <laughs> 720 years worth of energy in one day. That's how powerful the sun is. It's distant, it's ever reaching. Verse 6 its rising is from the ends of the earth and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Six weeks ago, my wife, Leanna, and I took our two older children, Will and Emma, to the Grand Canyon for their senior trip. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, it is an absolutely amazing and stunning sight. It's very powerful. When we saw it for the first time, we ran out, looked over the edge, and tears came to our eyes because it was so big. And so vast and so powerful. It's different hues of pinks and oranges. The Colorado River that's so powerful is way down there, you can barely see it. In fact, it's a mile down below you. As you're looking about 10 miles across of just this huge, beautiful canyon, all you can think about is God. You feel small, you feel humbled by this place. You feel humbled because it's dangerous. <laughs> You're literally staring down at sheer death. It's beautiful. It's awesome. It's fear-producing. When you're standing out on one of those jetties and the canyon wraps around you in 270 degrees, you feel like you're flying. You just feel exposed. It was kind of funny because... You know, you're all excited to see the Grand Canyon, so you see kind of at the South Rim at the Visitor Center, they have this point called Mathers Point. Some of you have been there. And the thing is, you want to run out and just see it. And I ran out, and about halfway out on that jetty, I stopped. <laughs> it's like, what am I doing? <laughs> and I began to back up like any sensible person would do. All of a sudden, I felt like I was flying, and I felt like I was going to fall. 
but like Peter on the water, right? One story is kind of funny. It depends on who you listen to. I tell it one way, my family tells it another, but as my, as life would go, we were walking down the South Rim, and there were parts that that don't have, you know, a guardrail. It's just kind of like beautiful, 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 boom, death, you know, <laughs> right there. And we were at that place of death, and I saw that my family wanted to go down and look at it a little bit more, and I said, you know what, you guys go ahead, I'll stand back up here, I think I see something I want to look at. So as they came up, so the way they tell it, the way I tell it is different. I found a tree and I was leaning against it, waiting for them. The way they tell it is they came up and they saw me hugging the tree. You can decide which one you want to believe, but I can tell you, I was afraid. All right. I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm confident in my manhood to admit that. All right. And then they wanted to hike down the the cavern, which was even more crazy for me. And I said, you know, I'll stand up on top and just look at you. All right. So they began to hike down. They didn't make it but a half mile. And then they came back. But as we were on the South Rim, and as I was sitting there waiting for my family to come and join me again, I met a fella who was in his 60s, a delightful man, small in stature, gray haired. He had been coming to the Grand Canyon for 30 years straight. He can't get enough of the Grand Canyon. He's hiked it. He's rafted it. He's camped in it. And that day I found him just with his binoculars surveying over the Grand Canyon. Began to talk to him a little bit about the Grand Canyon, about the different aspects of it, about where he's been down in the Grand Canyon, how to do it. Very interesting fellow. Knew a lot about the Grand Canyon. Later on, my wife and kids joined us and we were all talking to him. I kind of peeled away to find another tree to lean against, right? And the fellow looked at my wife and some other people that were there, and he said, you know, the only way to explain this is water. Water. How sad it is that someone can look at creation and miss the whole point. <laughs> That's what David's saying. He's saying, listen, don't miss the point. The water is not the creator. Water may be how... God created that, but behind the water and behind the sun stands a God. We see this in Romans 1, 19 through 32, and I'm going to read that passage to you. I have it on the slides. You can follow along. Very powerful set of verses here. Sorry for so much text on the slides, but you can follow along with me as I read. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made. So think about that. Ever since the creation of the world, the things that have been made, we see the power and divine nature of God. So that, and the conclusion of this, is so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. One of the things about nature is that we are able to honor God and give him thanks. 
But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. There are a lot of worshipers at the Grand Canyon, by the way, and the worshiping creation, not the creator. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Think about this. They misread scripture, so it leads to this kind of sin. The messages we listen to are important. Verse 28. And since they did not fit, see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, and disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. We see that in our culture today, don't we? This is the torment of mankind. We neglect the messages that God is trying to teach us. The presence of God is confirming. The power of God is radiant in his creation. The Grand Canyon's purpose is to evoke worship of the creator. If you're not worshiping the God of creation, then you're worshiping something else. Ultimately, humanism, the power of the man. We want to fear God and enjoy God. We want our kids to enjoy God. But I think sometimes we think the solution to that is just stick them in another church program. I think what David is saying here is stick them in nature for a little bit. Teach them about the power of God. Scare the snot out of them. Put them on the edge of the Grand Canyon, but hold them. Then they'll see the power of God, right? Teach our children well. Let's take them to places, right, that'll show the grandeur of God. Don't just show them the ocean. Show them the cliffs around the ocean. Show them the depths of the ocean. Go out deep sea fishing. Show them what it looks like to throw up over the side of a boat. (laughs) Get scared in creation because that teaches you about the great grandeur of God. Secondly, it's not just creation that we should be listening to. It's the message of Scripture that reveals God's passion. God is passionate. I hope you know that. As a kid, I grew up thinking God was not very passionate. Um, I saw a lot of old people worshiping God, and I thought their lives were boring. So I thought the last thing I want to do is be a Christian. So 
Um, you read scripture, you find out, man, God is different than what I thought. God is very passionate. And you have to develop a passion in your life for something. All right, so as you develop a passion in your life for something, um, that exemplifies and typifies God. That's how you were created, right? So look at this, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, much, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. The word describes Scripture in the sense that we are looking at the passion of God. What does the word law mean? The law was a general term for Scripture. It was the word Torah. The law is perfect in verse 7. The testimony or the things that God describes or affirms about himself, the Scripture says, make wise the simple. They're sure. The precepts and the commandments speak to the precision and authority in which God speaks. And what does that do for you? Rejoices the heart. Reviving the soul, rejoicing the heart, making wise the simple. And lastly, here in verse uh, 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We're talking about coming alive. What is it that makes you come alive? What is it that, that gets your heart pumping? It's always funny because before I get up here and preach, um, my heart is always beating faster than it normally would in a, in a given Sunday. Because I know I'm about to stand before you and address you from the Word of God. And, and there are some nerves attached to that. I want you to think I'm a good speaker. I want you to think I'm funny. I want you to think I know what I'm talking about. Those are all human things. But I also want to declare the truth for what it is. We all need stuff like that in our lives. What is it that gets your heart beating faster For God, it's his law. You see, nature alone in itself can't bring you to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We need something more than creation. We need scripture. We need something specific. This is why we need to listen to the message of scripture. By the way, the world has basically drowned out the message of creation. It's drowning out the message of scripture. And then we're going to find that it's going to drown out the message of the conscience, which is why we have such a psychological mess on our hands today. But David says two things. It's better than gold. It's better than honey. Gold was the greatest material thing of the time. The tabernacle was covered in gold. The the Ark of the Covenant was. The gold utensils were covered in gold. The temple that Solomon built was almost all covered in gold. It was the best, brightest, beautiful thing that you could find, and it was immediately transferable into other goods, so it was liquid. So David out there, as he, if he wrote this psalm, as some say that he wrote this psalm in a cave, as Saul was chasing him, he probably had no money, and he probably didn't have good food, so he's thinking about money, and he's thinking about food. He says it's better than honey. Nothing sweeter in that time than honey. And if you've ever been famished, you want something sweet to eat. 
want something sweet. As Jonathan, if you remember the story of Jonathan, was um, uh, Saul makes this decree when they're chasing David at some point. And um, he says, I don't want any of our men to eat. They were famished. They'd fought all day. And he says, we're not going to eat. Anybody who eats is going to die. Well, his son doesn't hear that. So he comes along, he finds honey, and he takes the honey, and it says his eyes were revived. David's thinking about these things. Of course, that was his good friend. But here's the thing. David said, more important than gold, more important than Food is the word of God. David's the kind of guy, like if you said this morning, you said, hey, listen, uh, uh, I'll give you two options. You can go to church or you can drive to Raleigh during church time and pick up a check for $5,000. All right, so if you were given that option this morning, I'm going to give you guys $5,000, but you got you to go to, ch- you got to miss church and go up and get it. Wow, I could use $5,000, right? You think, well, I'll just catch the service online later. David was not that kind of guy. David would say, no, I want to be in the place of God. I want to be where God is. And for me and for David, as he's saying, God is in the church. And so what's my point? I don't think we value the word enough or work hard enough to make this our reality. Like, I don't think we're passionate enough about the word of God because we would miss church for far less things, right, than $5,000. We would miss the gathering of God's people. Let's say, I'll catch it next week. There's something supernatural that happens in the church. And in fact, one author put it this way, we're not as Christians, as evangelicals, we're not brains on sticks, right? So we're not just, uh, Christianity is not just a teaching religion that can be caught didactically. In other words, this is not all there is. This is part of it. The way you live life together, the way you live in community, the way you fellowship together, the way your lives intermingle, the way you give to other people, the sacrifices you make for other believers. That's, that's the incarnational aspect of what we would typ- typically think as, you know, didactic religion. But if you're just coming to church on Sunday, and then that's the only connection you have to the body of Christ then you're treating yourself like a brain on a stick. You're missing out. That's not the point of the church. And so what God wants us to do is he wants us to internalize these things so that we can experience success, so that we won't fall into great transgression. And that brings us to our third and final point. Not only do we meditate on the creation and scripture, points us to the power and the passion of God, but we meditate on the message of your conscience, which reveals God's pardon. If there's one thing that people want to shut out today, it's their conscience. People don't want to hear that they're wrong. And when you talk about sin and you talk about God not approving of certain things, they are saying, well, that's saying that I am wrong. Notice verses 12 and 13, who can discern his errors? 
Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of the great transgression. What is it that David's worried about? That sin would have dominion over him. That he would commit great transgression. This is something that we need to listen to our own conscience. The conviction that comes when we sin. He uses two words here. One is hidden faults. The other one is presumptuous sins. Hidden faults are unintentional sins that we're unaware of or ignorant of. Sins that happen throughout the course of the day that only later maybe you realize, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, oh man, I, I didn't mean to say that. I didn't even know I said that. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Maybe I shouldn't have eaten that last eclair. <laughs> forgive me. Those sins that are just kind of there. Now, will those sins always be there? Yes. It's a way of humbling you. Everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. Everybody sins. That doesn't mean that it's right. It just means that we have to deal with it. And so he's saying, declare me innocent from hidden faults, but also presumptuous sins. This word presumptuous is a Hebrew word that means proud, defiant, insolent. Sins that are public, sins that, are, that make you proud, unrepented of sin, just kind of sin that just is like, oh, I'm going to do it no matter what you say. I don't care. I don't care what you say about it. And he says, keep me back from great transgression. These sins can lead me to great transgression. They can ruin me. What is a great transgression? I told you I would tell you about this. All right, so What's the difference between a sin and a great transgression? That's a good question to ask when you come to this passage. What's the difference? Well, there is a difference. It's used in Numbers 15, and we're going to see it in the New Testament. Look at Numbers 15, 27 through 36. I'll read it for you. If one person sins unintentionally, that's the word hidden faults, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake. And he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him. When he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, he shall be forgiven. But notice this, the person who does anything with a high hand, that's that word presumptuously. Whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. Look at Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, that's the same thing that Numbers was saying. Let him be cast out from God's people. We call that excommunication or church discipline. And yes, this church does practice that. 
If a sin is serious, public, unrepentant of, that's a presumptuous sin. In both cases, David is asking God to keep him from that sin, but also to provide pardon for him when he does sin. The leadership of the church ever comes to you and says, hey, listen, it's been reported that you've been doing this. We know that that's not according to the word of God, and we wanted to see if that was true. And we're encouraging you to stop. They're doing that out of love. They're doing it in accordance with the word of God. The best thing to do at that point would be like, yes, I do see that sin, and I'm sorry for that, and I want to repent. But so often the case is that people are just defiant in their sin. This is the challenge for us today. Is that God has an apparatus. He has a tomato cage for you in Psalm 19. As you begin to dwell on these three aspects, creation, scripture, and your conscience, they are screaming at you all the time. You do well to listen to them. Right words, right thoughts lead to right actions. It's interesting, later in life, Norman Vincent Peale would come to regret his book in this way. He said about the power of positive thinking, he says, I was not explicit enough with the gospel. He noticed that for a time, people who followed his principles enjoyed a greater measure of success and prosperity. But he noted that there was a tipping point. He said, when prosperity got too much for people and success came too easily, he said it began to destroy people's lives. Marriages and families were destroyed simply because the lure of success was too much. God doesn't want your life to be shipwrecked. He wants you to go in success. I'll end with this, 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 19. This charge, I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with prophecies previously made to you, that by them you may wage a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. May God keep us and protect us, especially in the messages that we learn. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a good God and a holy God and a righteous God. Help us, Lord, now as we contemplate, Lord, the work that you did for us in communion. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.